Now, off and on, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and this is the place that we've uh, reached. I haven't been here for a while, but just wanted to return to it. And to me, it's very apposite that we're looking at this just now. I have a friend who just lost his job, and it's a big shock to him. And I wrote to him words that you have to be quite careful writing. Uh, It can be a bit trite. But I suggested to him that he had become a little bit fossilized, and that by losing his job, actually a lot of things would be broken up and shaken up, and a whole lot of new opportunities would come. Well, he greatly appreciated that, and I was thinking about that in terms of what's uh, going on in Scotland today. I think some of us for years have been in silent and not-so-silent despair about the state of the church in Scotland. Some individual churches doing well, but overall the church not doing well. But I'm beginning to suspect, this is really Scottish optimism, that something good might be happening. That's about as far as you can go as a Scottish optimist. Um, Myself and Annabelle were at the parliamentary breakfast for Scotland, and I was very encouraged by the number of Christian MSPs who've been elected this year. And I mean down the line, Bible-believing Christians, uh, certainly more than, than I've ever known. I was also very intrigued at the openness of some in the media, but not all. And I began to think, why not? Why can't we see God changing our whole culture? John Lennox addressed the Scottish Parliament at their time for reflection. And if you get a chance, have a look at it on the Scottish Parliament website. It was really very, very good. And I just thought, again, why can't God bless his word? And maybe in the church, maybe there's been a lot of shaking up going on in the church, in the free church, in other churches as well. I'll be at the Baptist Union uh, conference this week a couple of times in St. Andrews. And um, what's going on in the Church of Scotland as well, that there uh, may be I hope actually there will be a real shaking up of the church in Scotland. And I think what we need, we've had some of that also, I believe, in this congregation. And I think that what we need is to stop mucking around with church politics and to start asking, what happens when Jesus gets involved? What does Jesus want? So we're going to look at this passage in that light of Jesus coming to town and to ask what Jesus does not want and to ask what he needs and what he wants us to do. Now, it's a big change in the story of Jesus here because uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He had kept relatively quiet. He'd kept relatively out of the public limelight. But he deliberately now draws public attention to himself. Hundreds of thousands of people are gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he comes to the Mount of Olives, the village of Bethany, just to the east of Jerusalem. It's about 2,600 feet high. The place of Bethphage, which means the house of figs. Bethany means the house of dates. And that's important as we go through this because he's in a place of great fruitfulness. It's within the traditional Sabbath day's journey to the center. And he comes into Jerusalem. And we'll notice, first of all, the things that he does not want. 
Firstly, he doesn't want riches. He was coming as a king, but he didn't come with a royal chariot, horses, soldiers, and servants. He borrowed the colt of an ass and sat on his disciples' cloaks because he did not have a saddle. He was too poor to have a saddle. Jesus borrowed a boat. Jesus was even buried in a borrowed tomb. It is not a sin to be poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It was a kingship of hidden majesty and of humble power to save. I think when we are talking about the church and what we want God to do in Scotland, there's an easy trap to fall into to think that we have to have um, lots of wealth, we have to have lots of property, we have to have uh, power, we have to have um, influence in the culture and the society at the highest levels. But sometimes that's not the way of Jesus. And maybe it, it might be a lot better for the church in Scotland if we stop worrying about our position and our authority and our power and instead just willingly submitted to Christ. We don't need the riches and power and authority of this world. It's a power, it's a kingship that Christ has of hidden majesty and of humble power to save. He doesn't need riches and he doesn't need <clears throat> religion. This was a religious festival. The people were praising Jesus enthusiastically. In fact, they even laid their cloaks down. Uh, you see that verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. It's as though a football team is returning home from winning a cup and people put their scarves out for them. And people were putting their cloaks out. They were celebrating. They were welcoming Jesus coming to the temple. And yet, although they sang Hosanna, although they sang blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, although they did all of that, these very same people, or most of them, would be shouting crucify him and release a murderer instead of him. They praise him, quoting the Bible, citing Psalm 118. They're in the middle of a religious festival and they tie Jesus in with that. But it was a religion that ended up in fruitlessness. The withered tree in this story is certainly a parable. Verses uh, 20 onwards, actually, the withered fig tree. We're going to look at that again. But it's certainly a parable. The Jewish church had all the leaves of a formal religion and a great history and God's covenant and a great past, but lacked the fruit of the Spirit. It is like an empty profession of Christianity where we can have baptism and communion and church membership but without the fruits and we're just left with religion. And Jesus hates it. And that's not too strong a word. Go to Revelation chapter 3 and you'll see exactly what he thinks of it. Revelation 3 and verse 14, page 1236 to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. An empty profession of Christianity. It is a horrendous thing. It stops the gospel being proclaimed because it shows people a tree without fruit and they don't want it. Why would they want it? Jesus warns us about that. Two things about this false religion that they were under. Firstly, they were enthusiastic. They were very enthusiastic people. They were singing and praising and they were shouting but there's a difference between enthusiasm and truth, between group spirit and individual perception. Donald English says this, group spirit and movement can hold us in the initial period of belief and sustain us during difficult times, but it is no substitute for individual understanding and commitment. As such, group spirit can prevent us from making our own discoveries and can hinder the truth from reaching the deepest areas of our personality. Some of us, are so scared of God that we hide behind other people. We hide behind our groups. We hide behind our traditions. We hide behind um, the collective, if you like, because we don't want individually, nor collectively, really, we don't want to face God. And we don't want, actually, to face ourselves. People can be very enthusiastic in their religious faith, But without Christ, that does end up just being dangerous. See, they came to the temple. Jesus went straight to the temple. Incredible building, grand and glorious, 30 acres on Mount Zion, surrounded by great walls that were about 1,300 to 1,000 feet in length. Sorry, I still think in feet. So whatever that is in meters for all you metric people. It had a big, wide outer space called the Court of the Gentiles. And... You could go into the next court, and that was the court of the women. You were allowed in that. Uh, Then the court of the Israelites, which women weren't allowed in. Then the court of the priests. And actually in the court of the priests itself stood the temple proper. It was a highly elaborate structure. There was a temple tax, two days wages per year for each person. So you work out what that would be for you. What was happening in this temple is that animals and birds were being sold for foreign money in the temple court of the Gentiles. The animals had to be certified, and it was a lot easier just to buy ready-made animals. You know, when you had ready-made chicken, it wasn't like Kentucky. It was just that there was a chicken there. It had already been certified. You could buy it, and that was it. If you brought your own chicken, you had to bring it all the way. You had to get it examined. You had to get it certified. So it was easier for the sellers in the temple to get the priests, what they would do is they would just declare anyone who brought something, they would say, it's not suitable. There was a real religious racket that went on. Doves likewise. 
The doves outside cost about a tenth of what they cost inside. It's like um, if you go to a tourist spot or you go to one of a motorway service area. Why are motorway service areas the most expensive places to eat? Because they know that you're on the road and they know that you're hungry and they know that your kids want something. So they'll just up the price because you have to pay it. Well, the money changers in the temple, they knew that that was the case. They knew that they could charge what they wanted. The temple money also had to be paid in old coins. They weren't allowed to pay them in Roman money. It's a bit like one or two of you here are old enough to remember when we didn't have uh, decimal money, when we had pounds, shilling, and pence. I can't remember any of that, but some of you will remember it. It's a bit like insisting that if you were to make an offering, you had to pay the money in old money, and then you had to change the money, and then again, it's that extraordinary thing, the exchange rate. When you go overseas, you pay out a certain amount of money. When you come back, if you're putting it back, you don't get the same money back because of the exchange rate. The church really became a commercial enterprise. So their religion was very enthusiastic, and it was about making money. Every trick in the book was being used to get people to give money. That still happens. And it's something that the Lord hates and something we turn away from. God wants his people to give and he wants his people to give graciously and generously. But he does not want his church to be turned into some kind of money-making racket. Paul says to Timothy, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in strife, envy, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Jesus doesn't want that. He doesn't want the religion of riches. He doesn't want the false enthusiasm. What he does want is stated here. He wanted real disciples, people to follow him, people to do what he said. Go and get a donkey. Go and get a colt. They did. Maybe They knew their Bibles. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He wanted people who would listen to his word and who would do what his word says. He didn't want disciples who would say to him, well, Lord, this is not a good way to enter, and our research has shown that this really won't work all that well. He just wants disciples who will hear his word and who will obey it. Now, I mentioned some of the stuff that's going on in Scotland, and um, the kind of thing that you will hear just now is you'll hear people saying, the Bible is not the word of God, it contains the word of God, and we have to reject the parts that are not of Jesus, and we take the parts that are of Jesus, and Jesus speaks by his Holy Spirit to us today, and so on. What's wrong with that is simply this, that we don't listen to Jesus. 
We just end up picking and choosing according to what we like or according to what our culture likes. And the very place we are tested is not the place where it is easy. It's not the place where, um, you know, love one another. Oh, that's great. Everyone likes that. It's the place where God teaches us things which go against the grain in our culture and which for us to admit to would be really, really difficult. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples to listen to him and to do what he says. If you take away the word of God as the authority of God, as the sufficiency, then you end up with a different kind of authority. You either end up with the authority of the church leader, whether it's a priest or a pastor or some kind of prophet, who says, I know what God says, and you can't check it up because the Bible is largely irrelevant to them. Or you end up with a teacher within the church or a teaching within the church which says, well, the Bible says this, but we now know the Bible is wrong. I listened to part of the debate in the Church of Scotland and I heard a man stand up and still shocks me when I hear people say this, so it shouldn't. He stood up and he said, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, this is not the word of God, we know it's wrong. And I, I still have that kind of shiver runs down my spine, which makes me think, you're going to get hit by lightning. You know, that's, that's, that's an incredible thing to say. This is not the word of God. Someone will come and say, but David, what about this bit in the Bible? Do you like that bit? And if I'm telling them the honest answer, I'll say no. No, I don't really get that. I don't grasp it. I don't understand it. But I tell you this, I'm not going to pick and choose with the word of God. I'm going to try and understand it in context. I'm going to wrestle with it. I know that there are things that are difficult in the Bible. I know that there are things I don't grasp. I know that there's bits I don't understand, even though I'm a minister and I've been studying it for years. But I am not going to go into the position of saying, I'm sorry, but that bit of the Bible's wrong. And that bit of the Bible's okay. And that bit's not sure about. Jesus wants real disciples. A disciple is somebody who learns. How do you learn? You learn from Jesus. How do you hear from Jesus? Not through a voice in your head. Not through declarations of churches. Not through your own wisdom. You learn from Jesus through the word of God. And if the church lets go of that, we're done. We really are done. He wants real fruit. Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now that whole thing of the fig tree is a very clear parable. Jesus, who could feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, is the one who gets hungry. What do we mean when we say that Jesus requires real fruit? <coughs> he wanted all the eyes to see him. He was coming to die. He deliberately entered Jerusalem at this point where there were hundreds of thousands of visitors <coughs> so that every eye would see. Maybe there was a deliberate provocation to the scribes and the Pharisees. But from his death flows all our hopes. From the seed of his death flows our fruitfulness. He wants fruitful disciples. Now what does that mean? Praise. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased.
we look sometimes and we say, well, the world won't like this or people won't like that. But our concern should primarily be with what will God like? And we should be like Martin Luther. We stand on the word of God and we say that here we stand and we can't do anything else. That's it. What do I have and what do you have that doesn't stem from the word of God? He wants fruitful disciples. Doing good, sharing with others, based upon what God has revealed to us in Christ. Now, this miracle, this cursing that occurs of the fig tree, this is the only destructive miracle. Every other miracle that Jesus does is productive. This is the only destructive one. Why? Because it shows how seriously Jesus took the issue of fruitlessness. We have a a symbol of the church in Scotland, traditionally of the Presbyterian church, of a burning bush with the words, nectamin consumibatur, it is not consumed. In the burning, it is not consumed. The bush, the tree, continues to bear fruit through all the persecutions. I think the problem with the church in Scotland is not that we've become irrelevant, though we have. It's not that we've become smaller and tired and weary, though we have. It's you just got to ask, where is the fruit? Where's the fruit? Jesus wants us to be fruitful disciples. And that just comes back again into this whole idea of uh, Christ cursing the fig tree. And maybe the Lord is not prepared to let the church in Scotland just gently fade away into the night. Maybe he loves us enough to discipline us and to shake us up and to pull out the weeds and to prune us and to make us fruitful. Christ wants real disciples and real fruit. Let me finish just by asking what what you want, what you need, what our society needs. It's very easy to want riches. It's also easy to say that we don't want them and yet to live for them. Jesus knew that. It's why he said you cannot serve both God and mammon. It's very easy to want religion. It's easy to say you want to be a real disciple of Jesus bearing real fruit. And yet, sometimes, it's not so easy to do. We follow a man who rode a donkey to his death. We follow the real Jesus, not the religious Jesus, not the one of our own imagination, not our own personal Jesus, but the real one. I think one of the great things about the course we're doing on Tuesday nights is just how real Christ comes across in that, because he is real. We as Christians serve a real Savior. It's not actually, is it really about us or even the churches that we belong to? It really is about following Christ, not being religious and ending up rebelling against the very one we profess to worship. The curse of the fig tree is the curse of mankind. 
It's a parable of unfulfilled potential and unfulfilled promise. It's the curse of profession without practice. That's surely what, in a sense, we dread. We don't want to profess to follow Jesus and not have any fruit. What about those around us? What do they need? Just think of of the needs of the people. Do you see the people as they walk down the Perth Road? Do you see the people as you go from this church? Do you see the people in your work tomorrow? Do you see the people you meet in shops? Do you see them as Christ sees them, as lost, without a shepherd? I was speaking to someone this week who's not long been a Christian, and it was just great. He was telling me, David, I hated the word saved. If I ever heard a Christian use the word saved, I would want to hit them. Um, he said, I really hated it. And I said, well, it's not a word I've used a great deal myself. Uh, and he said, I know. He said, but now, he said, I'm a Christian. I love the word saved. And I said, why? And he said, because that's what I am. It's just great. I've been saved. He said, I can't think of any other way to describe it. I will guarantee you, you go out in the street right now and you speak to people, or maybe some of you even here, and you hear that you need to be saved, and you're going, what? It seems so insulting and so patronizing, and I don't need to be saved. But that's the sadness of the lost. That's the sadness of the blind man walking around shouting, I can see, I can see. That's the sadness as... um, the wonderful illustration that C.S. Lewis uses of the child in his back garden playing in a muddy pool of water when he's been offered the whole beach. And he just doesn't see it. Doesn't realize the mess he's in and doesn't realize the greatness, the great things that's been offered to him. Well, I think the people in this society, the people in Dundee, the people in Ailith and Blagowry and Forfer and St. Andrews and all around, I think they're people who are lost without a shepherd. And I, again, I've got this image in my head this weekend, and it's just such a powerful image of standing outside in the Perth Road with Chris outside the Tartan Cafe as people are coming in, as the place eventually ended up being uh, standing room only as uh, Jason Arms and the jazz guys were playing. And people walking to go into town and stopping and hearing the music and stopping and, and we would speak to some and some would come in. And I would, for me, that image is almost an image of where the church should be. That in the story of the sirens singing, it's the sirens who lure people to their destruction. We do the other way around. We, we lure people, if you like, to their salvation. May God grant that we would see people as lost without a shepherd. And then what we have to do, we have to communicate. Look at verse 18. The chief priests, the teachers of the law heard this. And began looking for a way to kill him because of what he had done to their religion and to their commerce and their trade. Don't believe that these guys were just upset because he claimed to be the son of God. They were upset because their business and their lifestyle was being threatened. They were con merchants. Religious con merchants, the worst kind. But they were afraid of Jesus. Why? 
because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The teaching is desperately needed. We're in a world, we're in a Scotland, where people are hungry for the word of God, which is why it's of immense embarrassment when you hear Christians supposedly stand up and say, the Bible is not the word of God. Because non-Christians are going to hear that and go, well, even Christians can't agree amongst themselves. I think we have to just get back to this whole idea of this is the authority of God's word and we're standing by it, whatever the changeable fashions of our particular culture. And we need that teaching and it's so desperately needed, we need to communicate it and get out with it. We need to hear it ourselves, we need to get to know Jesus And we need to let our so-hungry world be fed with the bread of life. It means opposition. It takes great courage to go to people and tell them that all the ideas on which they have based their lives are wrong. But it is so important. And it is life to them. I have numerous testimonies and quotes from different people, famous and not so famous people, who having tried everything that they can, like Solomon, turn around and say it's all meaningless. What is the purpose of it? What is the point of it? I mentioned Tolstoy this morning. For those of you who weren't there, Tolstoy was, for some of his life, an atheist and was brought up as an atheist. And he came to realize that life just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And he came to, to read the Gospels and eventually to profess himself as a Christian. Sometimes I think a pretty messed up one. But when you go and see or you read Anna Karina, if you saw the play down in Dundee Rep, the play, the play is really intense. And uh, it's not a happy play. Not in lots of ways. And if you watch that play, it just, it rings very, very true to life. And you just kind of look and think, well, what's the point? And I think the answer is, there isn't a point without Jesus Christ. There just isn't a point. And that's what we've got. That's why we want to share that with people. When Jesus comes to town, it changes everything. It turns everything upside down. And it's my hope and my prayer that Christ hasn't left Scotland and that Christ will return to Scotland and that the preaching of his word will result in remarkable change in this country of ours. You know the motto of Glasgow, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word. You know that the city councillors of Glasgow now have the motto as let Glasgow flourish. They've left out by the preaching of his word. Well, maybe we might just beginning to see a change in that. And I hope that all those who are Bible-believing Christians will work and act together. We'll have the same priorities of Jesus Christ. And we will truly be his disciples, loving him, obeying his word, doing what he says, and longing to see the thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions coming to know and to serve him. Let's pray.
Bless your word to us, O Lord, and grant that you would come to us. Grant that you would help us as we seek to proclaim your gospel. Deliver us from a religion which we make up ourselves, from a religion in which we ignore your word. Help us to know better who you are, what you want us to do. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that even as they hear about who you are, they would commit their lives to you and seek to follow you, for you are the only one worth following. And I pray for those of us who do, that you would renew us and that you would strengthen us, and that we, as we sang of you as a beautiful Savior, so that we would live as you are our Savior, and we would honor your word, that we would be gracious in communicating it, but that we would be firm, that we would think, that we would try and understand, that we would seek to communicate, and that we would sing your praise so that others may be drawn to you, for we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.